Okay, so we're continuing in Galatians. And uh, if you want to open your Bible or tap there on your phone, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one near in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you can take that one home. Um, Galatians chapter 5, we're doing verses 16 to 26. I'll give you a, a super quick overview of Galatians. In, in chapters 1 and 2 of Galatians, Paul is arguing for the credibility, the truthfulness, and the superiority of the gospel over the law. This is a church that has been... Uh, infiltrated by people that have convinced them and distracted them away from the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ and said, you need Jesus, but you also need to fulfill the law. You need to have a moral superiority. You need to have a ceremonial or religion to get you points with God. And Paul says, no, Jesus Christ has done everything for you. And in chapters 1 and 2, he's arguing for the superiority of the gospel over the law. And then in chapters 3 and 4, Paul is establishing the effect of the gospel on the believer. And you remember those sermons, we, those messages, we talked about the reality that we are inheritors of the promises of Abraham, that we are no longer excuse me, slaves, but we are set free. Not only are we set free and no longer slaves, but that we are adopted into the family of God. Excuse me, not only are we adopted into the family of God, we are co-inheritors with Jesus Christ to the kingdom of God. And so all of that identity stuff of what the gospel accomplishes for us was in chapters 3 and 4. And now, after establishing the gospel and establishing the reality of our transformation and who we are in the gospel, in chapters 5 and 6, and this is important that we sort of understand the big picture here, in chapters 5 and 6, Paul is now explaining how that gospel actually works itself out in the Christian life. Because of the superiority of the gospel, because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, because we have received the Holy Spirit and we are a new creation and adopted and inheritors, then what does the Christian life look like as a believer in that gospel and an inheritor of that seed of the Holy Spirit? And so when you're reading Galatians, you can kind of break it down in that way. And that's where we are now in chapters 5 and 6. Paul's just explaining what the normal Christian life is. This is what it means to be a spirit-filled Christian. And he started out talking about freedom, you remember. He was saying, this is what true freedom is for us Christians. And that was sermon two weeks ago. You can go back on the website and listen to that if you missed that. But this is what true freedom is and not false freedom. And now he's going to talk about the reality of the normal spiritual Christian's life in wrestling with our flesh and bearing fruit of the Spirit. So Galatians 5, 16 to 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, and envying one another. 
Father God, I just pray that even as we read those ten verses of your word, that our eyes would be upon the page, that our eyes would be upon your word, and that you would be teaching us by your Holy Spirit what it is you mean for us as your followers to hear. And and for those here today that, that don't know you, that your word is still working powerfully. They are not here by accident, but by divine appointment. So, Father, I pray that your, your word would speak to us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So what is a normal Christian life, a normal life of a person who has the Holy Spirit? The first thing is that a, a normal spiritual Christian is at war. It's normal for us as Christians to be at war. He says, I say walk by the Spirit and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you, that you please. So Paul is saying, look, it's normal. As a Christian, you are going to be at war with your flesh. That's just a typical Christian day. We're at war, and the power by which we stand against the self-gratifying desires or the cravings of our flesh is the Holy Spirit. Paul says it's the Holy Spirit that is the way you set yourself against the flesh. We're free in Christ, Paul said, you remember, back in the earlier verses of chapter 5. In verse 13 he says, but our freedom is not meant to provide an opportunity for the flesh. And just by way of review, remember that we translate that word opportunity was very important. In the Greek, it was a forme. That our freedom is not an aforme for the flesh, which means literally a starting base of operations in a war. It's a beachhead. So Paul has in mind here the imagery of warfare. That our freedom is not meant to pre- provide an operation or base of operations of war for the flesh. And he's saying, in our, in our heart, in our mind, our natural-born, fallen bodily desires will be at war with anything that's contrary to its self-gratification. Right? And we, and we talked about that. We see that. You know, we especially see that when we're at our most sort of transparent as children, right? You know, give two kids one toy and watch what happens. Right? Or even give two kids two different toys. They always want the toy the other one has. Right? We have a... In, built into us in our self-gratifying flesh a desire for things that we want to have fulfilled. And Jesus says, or Paul says here, that our flesh is always desiring that and it is at odds with the Holy Spirit because he says we're free not to satisfy our flesh, but we're free to love and serve others. And the Holy Spirit comes and says the things I want for you are different than the things your body wants for itself. And so we're not to use our freedom that way. And then Paul concludes verse 13 and 14 there, again reviewing. He says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So Paul wants to be clear here that the solution to the flesh is not law. It's actually the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit is going to be a much better solution to this battle that you're waging with your flesh than a whole bunch of rules and regulations and religion. The law is not going to help you in that battle. But the Holy Spirit will. And so the structure of the text here is that Paul is setting up this contrast, which is a battle or a war between our flesh on one hand and the Holy Spirit that every Christian has within them on the other. Flesh versus spirit. And having established that two-sided battle now, Paul is going to be very clear in showing us the difference between the flesh and the spirit. Okay, So, so you see that in these first verses, Paul has said, this is the war that's going on. There's a battle. Now this is the battle. And he's going to now expand on that battle. So a normal 
spiritual Christian struggles against the flesh. This is, this is the battle, he says, that's going on. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, adultery, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, dissension, disputes, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like that, which I forewarned you of. It's a scary list, right? It's a sobering list. It's got a scarier consequence. He ends with the warning that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And everybody hates getting to these verses, right? You're reading through Galatians and you're just excited about the promises and the adoption of sons and the inheritance. And then Paul gives us this list, right? And you hate getting here. But you can't skip them because Paul says this is what we're at war with. These are the deeds. These are the works of the flesh that we are at war with. And whenever people get to a list, pastors and writers and stuff, they get to a list in the Bible, they think, oh, good, here's like a book automatically. i got nine chapters written out for me here already. You know, we'll just do one of them at a time, and we'll go through each one of them. But, but we, don't have to do for, we don't have to do that. For, for today, I think there's just two main things to recognize in this list. This is a list that Paul's used other lists in 1 Corinthians 6 or 2 Corinthians 12 or Romans 13. But, but the two things I just want to pick out of this list here is that Paul is painting a very clear picture of what he means by works of the flesh. So all you have to take out of this so that there's no misunderstanding is that these are the deeds or the works of the flesh. And what is amazing to me as I read through this is that anyone can read that list and see without a doubt that it's a negative list. These are all bad things. There's no question about it. Nobody would, as a whole, esteem these qualities that Paul has written here. Even unbelievers, even today, 2,000 years later, a person could read that list. Even people who might particularly enjoy in their own flesh some of these things would admit that the things in this list are not their finest moments, right? There's no, between Christians and non-Christians even, even after 2,000 years, as human beings, we recognize this is a bad list, right? These are things we wouldn't want our children to emulate or to do. These are things that we wouldn't want our spouse doing behind our back, right? Even non-Christians recognize these are negative things. These are not virtues. So that's the first thing to recognize is these are vices, not virtues, Secondly, it's a big, broad brush that Paul is painting with. He, he does this big, huge list because he wants his audience to see themselves in it. He doesn't want to just say one thing and then 80% of the people get off the hook, right? So, you know, Paul says, oh, he said adultery. I'm good. I don't have to listen anymore. You know, or, or you know, he said, oh, sorcery. Well, I'm, I'm not a warlock, so I'm good. You know, whatever he's talking about next isn't for me. You know, or he says drunkenness. Well, I don't drink, so... You know, he's not talking to me. No, Paul, Paul gets this huge list because he said, look, it's all this stuff, okay? And I know you guys, so I know you're in this list somewhere, okay? Right? I know most of you. I'm in this list. You're in this list. Somebody is in this list somewhere. That these are things that Paul doesn't want to give us any outs on. He just paints this broad picture of just self-absorbed, self-gratifying, abusive, and destructive behavior that we all find ourselves somewhere, and probably more places than we care to admit. It's an ugly list, and it's a scary conclusion that people like this don't inherit the kingdom of God, and you have to deal with that. So first of all, to deal with that verse that people who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, you have to set aside any wishful notions that everybody gets to heaven no matter what. Right? I don't know where this idea of universalism has come from and this new flavor of the last few years where love wins and hell is empty and everybody's going to heaven and 
That's great thought, but that does not do justice to the justice of God and the righteousness of God. And the reality is, Scripture is clear. There are people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. But who are those people? That's the question of this verse. Who are those people who don't inherit the kingdom of God? And it's important that we keep the context in mind here. Paul has said that the normal Christian who has the Holy Spirit is at war with the flesh, and the deeds of the flesh that they, we are at war with are these kinds of things he just listed. And so if we are really at war with them, they still exist in our flesh, and we still wrestle with them. That is the context that Paul is speaking into. And he says these are all against the law of God. And Paul's already made it clear in Galatians that nobody perfectly keeps the law of God, including Christians. But Paul says, I warn you, as I warned you before, if you practice these things... You maybe are not adopted. You're not the child. You're not the inheritor you might think you are. So what does he mean, practice then? And the Greek word there can help us out actually a little bit. It's, it's praso. And it can be translated to do or to practice. But it has a, a specific meaning. It's used in the Greek to transact or manage in the matter of getting payment. Or in other words, to make it your business. In other words, this is your business to do this, to transact in this. And so Paul is saying here that no Christian life makes it their business to participate in any of these things. And I know that right now, just as I say this, all of your little internal lawyers have woken up to argue just how much of this you can get away with before it becomes defined as a practice. Right? If you're saying that the definition here is that I don't practice these things or make it my business, then how often can I do it before it'll count as being my business? Put your lawyers away, okay? Just stay away from this stuff. There is no amount that you can do it safely, all right? How much practice is practice? Well, let's just use that phrase to see what it might mean, that phrase of making it your business. I can take anger as one of the things in the list there. I get angry at people. I can get angry at somebody. People do things, and I get angry. Sometimes, and I'm talking about me personally right now, I can get very angry, right? I have a powerful voice, and I can use it very harshly. And I can get really angry sometimes, but as a Christian, because of the Holy Spirit in me, I don't make it my business to get payback from people because I'm angry at them. I don't make it my business to even make sure the person knows just how angry I am. I don't go find somebody and say, you know what, I'm angry at you, and you need to know just how angry I am. Or I don't make it my business to let everybody else around me know how angry I am at that person and what they did to me. That's, there's, there's a problem where I can become angry, and that's not right. But then I can practice my anger. I can make anger my business so that I make sure that everybody knows how angry I am and I make sure everybody knows who I'm angry at and why I'm angry. And I make anger my business. And Paul says, normal Christians don't do that. Normal Christians put that to death. They do not make anger their business. They don't practice it. Or let's, or let's take another one. Maybe it's temptation in a sexual area, right? We can be tempted sexually. I mean, it's almost impossible in this culture not to be tempted in a sexual manner today. But I don't make it my business to make sure impure sexual satisfaction is part of my routine. I don't plan it. I don't set up opportunities for it. I don't make it my business to make sure that I'm taken care of that way. No, Paul says, you Christian are at war with sexual impurity. You are not making it your business to encounter it. None of this is stuff you practice. Or maybe I want to escape into drunkenness or self-gratification by overindulgence. And Paul isn't specific. He says drunkenness and partying and things like that. 
In other words, all these things. It's all inclusive. It could be binge drinking. It could be binge eating. It could be binge watching Netflix. It's all escapism. It's craving the created rather than the creator. And we get those temptations and we want to do those things. But Paul says it is not the business of a Christian to pursue that. You don't make it your business to plan out your life around getting satisfaction in this way. And you say, hey, I don't make a habit out of drinking. Well, you know what? 52 Friday nights a year, that's a habit. Right? We've got to be careful how we define these things. We Christians are at war against them by the Holy Spirit to make sure they're not what we make our business. They are not what we practice. But if you look around you, you will see that there are people who have made these things their business. You know some of these people. Maybe some of you are these people. Right? They have personally and sometimes literally are in the business of immorality. And they are in the business of drunkenness. And they are in the business of pursuing false gods and luring others into false gods. They are in the business of materialism, creating jealousy and envy on purpose, deliberately nurturing jealousy and envy. And they make it the business of their life to put others down and put themselves up. They make it their business to participate in self-gratification. They make it their business to stir the pot and squabble with others. And they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They need the rescuing power of the Holy Spirit to break them free from that bondage. And if your life looks no different than theirs, then I don't know where you are either. And I say that with all sincerity and love. If you can't tell your difference in the business you're about from the business of the world, then Paul says here, this is a corrective, this is a warning. You've got to look at this list and find out where you're at in it. So what is Paul's answer to these things, this battle in our flesh? It's not the law. Paul is explicitly saying, do not suddenly think that you need to make a list and just try really hard to be better. And if you're good enough, then God will accept you. It's not moralism. Paul is not going to say in the text here that these are really bad things. Try not to do these things. Now, this is where it gets interesting because he gives us this list. He says these are all horrible deeds of the flesh. And his answer is, you know what, Galatians? You should not do these things. You should try really hard and put a bunch of rules around your life so that you don't do them. That's not where he goes in the text. Paul is trying to be helpful here. He's trying to teach us how do we live the normal Christian life in the Spirit. Instead of talking about works or deeds or law, instead, Paul is going to start talking about, obviously, fruit. That makes sense. The next point is, the spiritual Christian normally battles the flesh with the fruit of love. It says in verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against all things, there is no law. Awesome, i got another book. Eight chapters. No. Again, same thing. I mean, it's almost comical, right? It it actually is comical. The, The mighty weapon that we are going to raise in our war on the flesh, Paul says, is fruit. We are going to overthrow the selfish, abusive, destructive, abhorrent forces of our flesh, apparently with a ripe peach. That's got to be some amazing fruit, right? If it, if, it, if it does war with the flesh, and, and like I say, it's funny, but it's not, because that is, it is amazing fruit. Paul's going to show us how amazing this fruit is. In reality, the contrast is deliberate. Paul intentionally and dramatically shifts metaphors in the middle of his argument. 
Okay, he was talking about war from verse 13 on. He was talking about a base of operations for war. He was talking about the spirit and the flesh in opposition to each other and desires set against them and the things that we are at war with. And then he shifts his metaphor suddenly to start talking about fruit. He uses a botanical image. And just like that first big list of the flesh, there's two things to notice here too. First of all, notice that this list is unarguably good. Nobody argues with this list not being a good list. Nobody disagrees that these things are positive and healthy and encouraging qualities. As bad as we can all agree that the first list is, everybody, again, even non-believers, agree that this is a good list. Everybody wants these things for themselves and for their children. Everybody would love it if their spouse treated them this way. The most despicable warlord or human trafficker would want to be treated this way. Hitler would want to be treated this way. Nobody's going to argue that this is a good list, right? And part of the reason maybe that they are warlords or human traffickers are because nobody did treat them this way. I mean, the world, as broken and as fallen and as destructive as it is, it still recognizes these qualities as virtuous. And that's kind of interesting in itself. But secondly, it's a big list, and they all go together. Okay? You're not meant to separate and, pun intended, cherry-pick out of them any more than you would the first list. The first list was all flesh and sin, and this is all spirit and all love. And they all go together, and we don't have to spend time basically breaking down each individual one of them because they're all love and they're all one. They're all one fruit. Okay, I, I know that m many of you know this. For centuries, the commentators have noticed that Paul explicitly uses a singular noun for the word fruit. And then, in an apparent grammatical mistake, he lists nine different things. But, of course, they're not different. They can't be separated or they wouldn't make any sense. And I'll just quickly, this is how they go together. How could someone say that they're doing excellent at being peaceful but be unkind to others? That kind of peace can't be a true peace. It's a false peace. It's the peace of being uncaring. If you say, I'm perfectly at peace, meanwhile you're mean to everybody around you, the only way you can be at peace is because you don't care about people. So that's not real peace and it can't be part of this fruit because this fruit all goes together. Whatever kind of love that is, it isn't true love, it isn't this love, it's just maybe self-love. Or another example, how can you say that you are excellent or excelling at self-control, but you are impatient with most of the people you encounter? So apparently you can control everything except your ability to be gracious or compassionate. You can't be impatient and say that you have self-control at the same time. Or how can you say that you are full of the faithfulness of this fruit, but you have little joy? If you are trusting in God faithfully and in His sovereignty, then you can only be joyful. To the degree that you lack joy is the degree that you doubt God and you're not full of faithfulness. And so you see, that the fruit all have to hang together. It makes no sense to talk about them separately. And so I'm not going to belabor that, but the fruit is one spiritual fruit, and it's love. And that must be included in increasing measures all the other virtues that are there. But just getting back to this idea of that shift in imagery that Paul executes here from a war on the works of the flesh to the botanical growth of fruit from the Holy Spirit. Why is he talking about fruit? All of the characteristics of this fruit are virtues. They're not deeds. They're not explicit behaviors. They're not works. Paul does not say work on being kind. Or he says, you know, help old ladies across the street. Or feed the poor. Or, you know, be a better friend. He doesn't give a list of deeds, right? He gives this fruit of the Spirit, which are virtues, they are nature, they are the character of the Christian. The normal Christian is nurturing and cultivating 
these characteristics. And so Paul has shifted from behavior to being. It's not what you do, it's who you are. And so Paul's answer to the battle against sinful behavior is not counter-behavior, it's not behavior modification, it's about becoming something new. His language is about nurturing new motives, it's about cultivating new characteristics in ourselves from the Holy Spirit. And fruit of a certain kind only comes from that kind of seed, right? Peach trees come from peach seeds. And so at the most basic level, Paul says, you have a new seed planted in you. What is that seed? Anybody? What is the seed we have in us? The Holy Spirit, Jesus, love. I'll take all those answers. Those are good. I'm just making sure you're following along here. We Christians have the new seed planted in us. And only one kind of fruit can grow from that seed. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Right? We have the Holy Spirit in us Christians. And the, and the seed and the fruit that grows from that is the Holy Spirit's fruit. Only this kind of love grows from the seed of the Spirit. Now let's just carry this analogy a little bit. Healthy fruit only comes from a tree that has deep roots. And it's properly cultivated. And it's nourished. And if you want to see these fruits grow, because remember, Paul's trying to be helpful here, okay? Paul wants to help us as Christians know how to live the normal Christian life in our flesh. And so if you want to be helped by this, then you see what Paul is getting at with fruit. He says, look, if you want healthy fruit, then you need roots that go deep. And it has to be properly cultivated. And it has to be properly nourished. If you want to see these fruit grow healthy in you, Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, how are you cultivating and nourishing this fruit? Are you feeding the roots by studying your Bible? Are you drinking in the Word of God and making sure that your roots are down deep in God's wisdom and knowledge and love for you, which is found in the Bible that you're holding. I hope you're holding your Bible right now. That's where your roots have to go down. Are you planted in a healthy garden? Are you hanging around the right kind of people? Or are you spending most of your time out in the weeds? It's, it's dangerous out there. You have to have a loving community together around you to be encouraged and to grow healthy and strong so that you can tackle the world that's out there? Are you getting plenty of sunlight, spending time in the presence of God in prayer? And look, I'm probably the last person who would ever stand up here and overuse a metaphor. I hate it when metaphors are overused and stretched beyond what is intended by Scripture. And there's a lot of danger here because Paul's not talking about the stuff I just talked about there, right? Paul doesn't talk about putting down roots and, and, and sun and prayer and Bible reading and all that stuff. But I don't think I'm too far off in this metaphor. I think there's a reason that Paul has moved to a nurturing and a cultivating and a growing metaphor. And the reason I don't think I'm too far off is because I can go back into the Old Testament, into Psalms. And I think I can see what the mind of God is for us. He says in Psalm 1, 1 to 3, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. This is what Paul's talking about. He's saying this is the normal Christian life. Okay, if you have the Spirit in you, you are at war with the flesh, and these are all the deeds of the flesh, and I've warned you that if you make those things your business, the kingdom of heaven is not your destination. But he says, there is a fruit, there's a seed planted in you 
You are a new creation, and there is a fruit that you can nurture and you can cultivate, and that fruit is love. And if you are nurturing and cultivating and putting your roots down, firmly planted by streams of water, you will yield this fruit, and it will do battle against those works of the flesh, Christian. And that's how you get your victory. This is what the normal Christian life looks like. That's what Paul wants us to see here. He's trying to be helpful to his Galatian friends. He's trying to be helpful to us. And in the end, doesn't this picture make sense? What else could Paul juxtapose against such an ugly, filthy list of behaviors better than the picture of a beautiful, ripe, sweet fruit that's filled with all these desirable flavors and characteristics? What a perfect juxtaposition of pictures. The normal Christian life is one that's nourishing the fruit of the Spirit and not making a business out of the deeds of the flesh. So then Paul finishes off by describing you as a Christian. Paul says, this is the normal Christian experience in verse 24. He says, now those who belong to Christ, who's he talking to? You and me, I hope. Jesus, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. That's it. He says, look. You are putting your flesh to death. Crucifying is an ugly word. Crucifying is serious. Paul says this is how you have to treat your flesh. You have to crucify it. You have to nail it to the cross. You have to put it to death. You have to force it to submit. And you do that by living by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit in the fruit of the Spirit. You do it not by a whole bunch of religiosity and a whole bunch of regulations and a whole bunch of law. You do it by cultivating this fruit. It's that simple. The Holy Spirit's giving you a new nature. He's giving you a new fruit. And that fruit is love. And you cultivate that. And when you do that, the things of the flesh will die. So if you're alive by the Spirit, then you should be walking by the Spirit. And then he just sets up next week. That's the message. Take that. And then that last verse... He's just setting up next next week or, or the week after when we, when we get back into this. He says, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. It's basically saying, so at the end of this, Paul already knows where the Galatians are going to go. Oh, now they're just going to argue about this. Look at how spiritual I am, right? You know, look at how much love I have. I'm like the super spiritual person here. Or the other people will be like, man, I can never, like, I mean, Pam is just so amazing. How can I ever be as loving and as generous and as giving as Pam? She's got all the fruit of the Spirit. I don't have any of them. Paul says, no, like, don't boast and be envious of each other over this now. And he's setting us up for next week, okay? But the message, the message of, 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 of this week is just nurture that fruit of love. And the message is be crucifying your flesh. Don't be making it your business to be doing those things of the flesh. Because they do not lead to the kingdom of heaven. Now we're going to communion, and uh, the music team's going to come up and sing a song. And as they're singing, you can just kind of be responding to this message. And communion is an awesome message to end on communion, because if, if, if we who have Jesus Christ can come to Him, and we can prepare our hearts and be ready to have this dinner with Him, to crucify the things of our flesh, to recognize, have Him search our heart for what it is that we are making our business, that we have no business being our business. And the things in our life and in our heart that we need to nurture and cultivate through His Word and through prayer and through community in His, in His church. What are those things of the Spirit, those fruit of the Spirit that we should be cultivating and nurturing? 
so that we are living the normal Christian life. This isn't super Christianity. This is just day-to-day, day-in, day-out Christianity. 